Hello, thank you for coming. I'm Helen Perry, a marketing teacher for creatives who want to be seen and known at least a little so they can do the work they love. And this is the Just Bloody Post-It podcast. I make it for you. This week, words, writing your way into the heart of people's inboxes and selling millions of pounds worth of online courses with the copywriter and unapologetically lazy person, Laura Belgray. I think there's good lazy and bad lazy, and I have them in equal measure. Good lazy, I feel, is the part of me that is comfortable doing nothing. I don't find my self-worth. I don't locate my self-worth in how hard I work. And a lot of people do, men and women, both. They think the harder they work, the better person they are. And they feel guilty if they're doing nothing. They feel guilty if they have downtime or blank space on the calendar, whereas that's what makes me feel the best. I love my calendar to be as blank as possible. You might know Laura as the talking shrimp, her business name. I do, but realise making this episode, I have no idea what a talking shrimp is and why she would be one. So keep listening. We'll get the answer. Laura is a copywriting and emails expert. She gave up a super well-paid gig writing wonderful words for big brands to sell courses about how to write like a human. She sends fantastic emails. I hang on to them for inspiration when I'm stuck for what to write. Her magic is being able to write words that read like you're in a conversation with her, not a sales message. And those are the emails we open and read, right? She's also the author of a new book, Tough Titties, on living your best life when you're the effing worst. See, she has a way with words. We'll talk about the book and the title, but first I asked Laura how she writes. Well, my writing style is conversational, can be a little edgy. I would say full of specific, concrete detail and maybe a little dialogue, a little action, but I, I like to write in an entertaining, compelling way. And I've, I ditched the corporate early on. I was never, never uh, good at a corporate buttoned up voice and hated it. So um, yeah, that's how I would describe my writing style. When did you learn in your career that you were, that you were good at this, that you're good at writing copy? Uh-huh. What is copy? Copy is <laughs> copies words that provoke action. Yeah. What, what, do you, yeah. what do you call copy? Yeah, I I think in our world, which I would call the online space or just the space, it's known as words that get people to take an action. Um, I come from way back when the magazine world, where you would just say, "I need copy for this piece," and so to me, copy has always meant, you know, the words that go here. Um, so, and, and it's usually used in a commercial sense. I mean, there's ad copy, there's sales copy, there's, so copy is usually something that people read, whether, you know, either it's in a magazine and they've, then they're, they've paid to read it or it's elsewhere and it is getting them to pay, (laughs) um, for something else, or to tune in. It's so I also come from the promo world. I wrote TV promos for a long time and that was considered copy. And, um, I think when people talk about copy in the copywriting online space, they're talking about direct response copy, which is, you know, buy now, click here. Um, 
get these five steps, opt in and uh, buy this protein powder. But I come from <laughs> my, my background is a place where our copy was getting people to tune in and think of a network in a certain sense. It was a brand, it was branding copy. So when they thought of, for instance, Nick at Night, where I was, which was one of the places I started out working, they would think of, you know, classic TV. It was the home of classic TV. So copy has a broad, pretty broad definition in my view. And um, when I got first got into the online space via my blog, my my website, my first website, which was in 2009, people would say, I would be blogging about it's really personal essay writing or short pieces. I would be blogging about ridiculous things like um, how my dad called his rain boots rubbers or a menudo video that I remembered from the eighties. And people would say, I love your copy. Can you write copy for me? So I think uh, if you call it copy, then it's copy. You've been uh, uh, consistently open talking about being paid, you know, like loads per hour to write those words in, in the, mm -hmm. I guess, latter, latter stages of your career when yeah. you were working for clients rather than, I guess, yourself and, and anybody who wants to join in. I mean, you're, you're pretty decent at it. Do you think that just comes as a result of practice and daily writing? I do. And I, you know, when I entered that online space and started taking on clients, and writing, helping them with their website copy, et cetera, I didn't really know what I was doing. Because I was, again, coming from that background where I was writing tune-in copy, copy that would make people laugh. It was, it was just meant to be entertaining and get their attention and keep them from clicking away during the commercials, make them remember a show that they wanted to watch. When I started out help, helping private clients, with their copy that needed to sell them or sell something. I didn't realize this, but it was a whole different kind of copy. And what I did know how to do was write in a way that's conversational and compelling and sounds like a person, which most people don't know how to do because it's been drilled out of them in school or if they've been in the corporate world or especially if they're lawyers. So that I knew how to do, but it has been over time with a lot of practice that I've learned to write copy that actually gets people to click and buy something. So that, that is for sure a, it's a practice. It's something it takes, it requires practice. It requires study or a lot of observation like, Oh, what makes me want to buy this? What about this copy works on me? That's usually how I judge it. Um, I haven't done a lot of, true formal study as in like reading all the books that I'm supposed to, Eugene Schwartz, taking all different courses. I haven't done that much of that. It's usually a matter of this really makes me want to buy. Why? Okay, I'm going to use that. I'm going to incorporate that into my copy. It's an exercise I often share when I'm working with groups of people. It's like over the next 24 hours, can you just notice what you do, what makes you open something or stop or read the whole thing rather than just moving on super quickly? And like, you know, that's that's some good shit. So can yeah. you kind of copy it and then go from there? Mm -hmm. it's, it's, I mean, I think that's probably how I've taught my, myself. Um, I was a journalist also. So I come from that background of, of doing a lot, a lot of copywriting. Yeah. 
Um, I'm going to mash up two things that you've said. First of all, talking about copy as just something that will hold people's attention, pique their interest, stop them from moving on. And I wonder whether in a lot of a lot of people who teach copywriting are kind of trying to jump beyond that to the click buy thing too quickly. Is Would you agree that perhaps the best way to start getting better at writing is to just think, how can I be interesting enough in this email, caption, whatever? Yeah, um, I think there's a lot to being the art of being interesting. And some Go of that then, is how, how do we, be, how do we be interested? <laughs> like if you're, Please. if you're writing a story, for example, say you're writing an email with a story in it, um, you have to, you have to let them know why you're telling the story. It has to lead to some sort of a point, a takeaway. It doesn't have to be a call to action, but it has to arc to some kind of meaning, some sort of, why am I telling you this? What is this all about? And it also, you know, I, I believe in concrete details, which I mentioned, like that's what makes your writing pop off the page. I call it the, uh, the Steven Spielberg test. Like if you handed this to a director, would they know how to shoot the scene or is it just full of vague language that our eyes glaze over? Mm -hmm. Can you give me an example of how that works in, in an, in an email for you? What are the concrete things that need to be there in order for it, for this communication to work? I'll give you a really simple example, not from an email necessarily, but say from sales copy. Um, this is the classic example that I didn't come up with, but you know, do you feel overweight versus can't button your favorite jeans? Can't button your favorite jeans is concrete detail. We can picture that it's specific, it's visual. Whereas feel overweight is not, it's just vague, it's just a word. So um, I, one thing that I see all the time is people talking about like writing a story. This might be an email. It might be their about page, writing a story about their rock bottom moment. And they'll say, it's usually their origin story. And they'll say, like, I was in a dark place, perhaps the darkest place of my life. I was in an emotional hole and I couldn't climb out. Um, and I don't know what that means. What is a dark place? Were you sitting in the dark? Was it a darkened room? Was the, you know, were you in the corner, like sitting on the floor, eating um, Doritos in your dirty sweats, stalking your ex-boyfriend on Facebook and Instagram? Um, what does that look like being in a dark place? Doesn't mean you are out turning tricks on the street. I don't know. So tell us, show us. It's, it's the old creative writing rule, show, don't tell. And that's how you write compelling words, whether it is content or copy or whatever you want to call it, whether it's selling something or just entertaining people or in a book, the show don't tell, use concrete specific details to me is the key to making your writing pop off the page. But you don't want to do it for, you don't want to go overboard and give the details of everything. Like if it's, you want to consider what details are relevant here. What are telling a story that I want to tell? So for instance, if you're telling a story about, um, I don't know, cashing a big check and it, the, like when you walked into the bank with a giant check, it's not about like it was a crisp fall day. I could smell the crackle of, you know, fires in the, <laughs> in the air, a leaf drifted from the, from the tree above, um, the, 
like I, you know, um, the sound of laughing children tinkled on the street. None of that is relevant. It's, you know, I walked into the bank and maybe it's what the bank teller was wearing or how they looked at you when you handed them the check or whether your hands were a little clammy or, you know, or maybe it's about what you were wearing because you dressed up that day because it was a giant check, but it's not about, it's not about the weather or necessarily the temperature inside the bank. It might be about the temperature in there if that's relevant, but you don't want every single detail. And I think people like to focus, might like to make it flowery and focus on the weather, the setting. People love to talk about flowers, literally. And it's usually irrelevant. Anybody who just listened to that will realize that you're excellent at teaching this stuff using examples. And I've, I've bought one of your courses and I've been you know engaged with your content for a long time. And what you do very well is show before and after or this is what I mean. Um, when did you decide to start creating courses? In around 2018, 2019. So I was working with private recent that's that's way more recent than I thought that's not that's not very long ago no it's not very long ago at all I I would say around starting around 2016 or so I had um or 2017 I can't remember the year but I had a mini course and uh like that that I started selling through gumroad on which is was very simple to upload a pdf to and so I had a a little taste of it it was chump change it's a small and it's still up on my website um it's a lower ticket item and it didn't make me a living but i had a taste of like oh i can sell a course and i also had a taste of that from a from having the copy cure i shouldn't gloss over that um the copy cure with my partner marie forleo came out in 2015 and that was my course and I never felt I had it in me to create a big course on my own at all. And I didn't want to take it on, like doing videos and modules and all that kind of stuff. But Marie is good. She's amazing at that. She had B-School and she had the infrastructure um, to create it. So what a stroke of luck for me to get, you know, to be in on a course, to actually be able to have a course without creating all that material by myself uh, and producing it. She produced it. So I had that. Um, and I had, so we'll talk about selling a course. Uh, my first real taste of selling a course was as an affiliate for B-School. And oh, okay, this mm-hmm. is this jumps to like some questions I had further down the page. Oh, okay. I've never done any I have never done any affiliate marketing one reason or another. But I know that you do because I receive your emails and, and have, have, you know, read your your articles that you've written in the press. Um, I think we should probably explain what affi- what being an affiliate is maybe for people who've never heard of it. Way back in the day, we used to write affiliate, like when I was in promos, we would write for affiliate stations. Um, And I had no idea what affiliate meant. It's just affiliated. But it is, when we're talking about courses, it is um, a way of, you promote somebody else's course. It's OPP, other people's programs, which I love. You don't have to create the asset and you promote it and you get a commission. I mean, it's, it's selling on commission, which people do all the time, all day. That's what stores do. They stock other people's products on the shelves and they get a cut. Um, so that's what, except you don't have to pay anything up front when you're an affiliate. You just 
promote the person's course and you get a commission for each sale. And it's been really, it's been really lucrative for you. Am I right? Oh, you're absolutely yeah. right. I mean, I, I've made like by this point, millions in affiliate sales. Um, but for one course, for me, this is really big. Other people make millions on just one course in one year, promoting it in one year as an affiliate. I've made, you know, up to 200,000 for promoting like one round of one course. That's unusual for me. Um, that was like a boom year, 2020. And and by the way, this is just a, a quick sidebar. Anyone who tells you like I made X amount um, in like selling courses during a pandemic, like as if it's a real feat to make extra money during a pandemic, it is not. That was the biggest boom year will ever have like you better have made good money during the pandemic if you're selling courses. Um, so just a yeah. side note there. Um, that's not special. But uh, if, if you made a, a bucket load as a, mas a massage therapist during the pandemic, then hats <laughs> off to you. Um, so, so that's all to say I started promoting B school probably in like 2012, I feel like it was where 2013. And it's you know, it was a $2,000 course at the time and 50% commission. So I sold like 20 just through my emails, offering a bonus uh, and or a couple of bonuses. And I was like, holy crap, I just through writing some emails, I just made like 20 something thousand dollars. It was unbelievable to me. I was like, I'm going to do more of this. I'm going to do this every year. I'm going to do this all the time. Um, and eventually I started taking, for a long time, I was just promoting B-School. Like that was the only thing I was an affiliate for. And then as I got better at it and started getting on the leaderboard, other people would approach me and say, can you be an affiliate for my course too? And so I took on a few others. Two questions. How do you choose courses you are prepared to be an affiliate marketer for? Yeah. And second of all, doesn't that uh, do you still have time to promote your own stuff mm -hmm. around all of that yeah so, so i'll answer both of those questions the first one is i only promote things that i believe in and have checked out or taken myself b school being the first example i was in murray's mastermind um in 2010 and we got b school included for free and so i had b school and had though i hadn't done it all I had listened to all the like listened to every module and listened to all the calls and gotten a lot out of it and thought it was great so I was easily able to promote it and to promote Marie because Marie was incredible and a great example of success and what you can do online um, and so I've only I've only said yes to courses that I am familiar with if I'm not familiar with them I will ask to have access to it and check it out and make sure it's useful to me or I will actually buy it and take it. Um, and it's pretty much only friends, people I know well, who I've been an affiliate for. Uh, no, I have never said yes to somebody who I wasn't really pretty close with. So there's that. And then you asked, how do I have time to do that? And from my, promote my own stuff. And I will say the calendar gets crowded and in the past couple of years, I've been like, oh, I got to cut back on affiliate stuff because there are times when I feel like 
I am always selling and I don't feel like being always selling. Like I go right from an affiliate promotion into selling my own thing and I don't want to wear out my list. Um, though a lot of them are very appreciative of it, of being introduced to friends of mine who are great for them, are incredible mentors and teachers and have a lot to offer. So it's, it is a service to them for me to promote these things, but it still just feels like a slog at a certain point when you're doing it over and over and over. Um, it's nice to know that somebody with so much experience also sort of has those those niggly feelings. I would also say as somebody who, I think we, we do over worry about this because quite often, even when I have absolutely no intention of, of buying something at a particular moment, I still don't mind reading about it. Mm -hmm. I still could be quite interested to hear that something's happening or what's this person doing or how, you know, I, I still... I think we can, I think we can be over fearful. I think as long as the content is still interesting, yes. funny, you know, there's some added value in there, even if you have no intention of buying the course, I think you can kind of, uh, you know, you can talk about things much more than you, oh, you think. I totally agree. And I make a point of making almost every email relevant to somebody who's not interested in the thing I'm promoting, as well as the people who are. You know, when it comes to like the FAQ email or something that's sometimes you have to be straight to the point and, hey, it's closing in five minutes and that's not a, there's no story there. But I do try to yeah. inject some personality into even those. And yeah, I like to tell, I always like to give it some story, give it some personality, make it worth reading, even if you're not interested. What makes a great course? What are the, what are the components of a great course for you, big or small? Uh, for me, it's on... <laughs> For me, it's if I can listen to it while I walk. That's it. Because I um, I am a terrible course taker. I never finish a course, especially when it's like a six-week or eight-week course, lots of modules. I will never get through it. I will maybe buy it with great intentions and then not even crack it. If it's an hour-long thing that teaches you to do one thing, that's good for me. That's what I like. And... I, I'm better. I'm actually better if it's one-on-one, -on -one, like my friend and a uh, person I call my digital conciliere um, was Michelle Martello, Minima Designs. She's given me like tutorials, like we'll spend an hour teaching me how to make my own graphics in Photoshop, et cetera. And that I learn from because it's, I don't know, it's one-on-one. -on -one, I'm paying attention. I'm not going to look away and check out what's you know, who just messaged me on Instagram. Um, so I'm, that's for me, it's not necessarily what makes a good course, but what makes a course that I will actually absorb and get something out of. But, uh, but as for those big courses, like even if you take them and don't finish them or just dip into them, that if, as long as you got something out of it that you wouldn't have, that is valuable to you, like one thing, then to me, it's worth the price. Yeah, it can be if it, if it just if there's one thing that moves you forward. Yes, you've had you've, you've had your value. Um, and it's interesting, you talk about bite sized chunks of learning, I find people are very drawn from drawn to that from from a sales point of view as well. When I'm selling things, they're super easy to sell, come along for an hour, get the thing, mm -hmm. get on with your life. Yeah, bite sized. Um, and I would uh, yeah, I would say to people listening, and you talked about the problem of the big course and like, oh, how am I going to, where where am I going to put it? And how am I going to record the video? And Marie helped you with that. For me, it was very difficult getting over that hurdle. And I would just say to anybody listening, like, 
don't do a big course then. Yeah. <laughs> it doesn't have to it does not have to be everything you've ever learned since you did, you know, this this thing when you were 18 until now when you're 46. It just really it does not have to be that. It can be something a really small part of it that you could teach first. Yes, exactly. Well, that's what uh, that brings me back to the question you originally asked was like when did I switch into um doing courses? Like I well, first of all, from the copy cure, I learned that because we do these live with Laura sessions, they're an hour long, and I just answer questions on the fly. And then feedback sessions, these makeover sessions where I look at people's copy and make it over live. Um, that taught me that that's something I really like doing. I like a no homework life. I like doing things that require zero prep. So especially answering questions on the fly. That was my jam. And I told this to my coach at the time. Um, his name is Ron Reich. And I said, I really, you know, I, I was trying to figure out what's next for me. How am I going to make money outside of client work? Cause I was getting really tired of it and ground down. And I told him that I loved that. And he's like, well, that tells me that you should do a group program. You should have a mastermind, some sort of a group program and you can do hot seats. And I was like, Oh wow. So um, it had never occurred to me that that's something I would be good at or like doing. So I created Shrimp Club, which is my mastermind. And then that same year, I also created a course called Inbox Hero. And it was sort of based on my mini course, 60 Minute Makeover Copywriting Mini Course, which was is befores and afters. And it has just one, I think, one or two emails in it, email makeovers. And people had asked me again and again, like, do you have a version of this that's all emails? So I created that and it became Inbox Hero and much bigger than that mini course. It became, but still not a big course, not a multi-module course. It's really a PDF with some videos to go along with it. And uh, I mean, it's a hundred pages. So you could call it a book, call it whatever you want. It's, um, it's extensive, but you don't have to, you know, tell your family that you're going to be spending the next six weeks in school. You don't have to take leave from the office, <laughs> yeah. et cetera. You can devour it in one it's day like, or over time. That kind of thing's, it's almost like a, a resource. You've got it, you know, you've bought it, you've got it. You can dip in and out of it when you need it. If yes. you're struggling with your sales emails or whatever, you know, it's, it's a really nice thing to be able to create and, and own. Um, what is a talking shrimp? <laughs> okay. Oh, so, so let me set the Why record straight. One? Let me set the record straight. I am not a talking shrimp. I'm not the talking shrimp. That always makes me feel like I'm, <laughs> I'm not the mascot of my business. It is just called talking shrimp. <laughs> It's my business, but it's not me. I'm not it. Um, and the name came about, I always say, I like, wish it were a sexier story. But back in 2009, my husband and I had you know, been reamed uh, with our first tax returns um, as a married couple. And my accountant said, well, yeah, it's terrible when you're married. I thought it would be great when you were married, like your taxes would be lower. And he's like, absolutely not the case. Um, if you want lower taxes, you should incorporate, the two of you should incorporate because we were both kind of freelance. My husband worked in restaurants and not always on payroll, sometimes as a pro on a project rate. And I was freelance technically, um, my own business. So he, he said we should incorporate and he said, 
preferably like just pick a name doesn't have to mean anything preferably something with an available url and so we just brainstormed just stupid names and my husband likes talking animals he just has a thing for like talking dogs and i looked up talkinganimals.com and that was taken and there was a a little like Chinese gift shop knockoff store down the street called funny cry happy. And I thought it was like, Oh, I love that name. I'm going to call it funny cry, happy media. Believe it or not, that was actually taken. Um, and then talking shrimp, who knew talking shrimp was actually available. No one had scooped up that URL. And so that's what we went with. And over time I realized, okay, this actually does mean something, because uh, it's about communication. That's the business I'm in. It can apply to either of us, like he's in restaurants, shrimp, and I'm talking. Um, but at the time, Seth Godin's book, Purple Cow, was really big. Oh, and I've read it. Right? And the idea of purple cow yeah. is like it's something that makes you look, makes you, nobody, nobody doesn't notice a purple cow. Um, and I was like, well, same thing with talking shrimp. And it is true it the name, like when I, especially when I used to carry a tote bag, um, a talking shrimp tote bag, which I wore into the ground, it has never failed to start a conversation. Like anytime somebody sees my name, like, or on, on an intake form at the gynecologist, I'll be at the stirrups and she's like, so what's talking shrimp? <laughs> um, so yeah, it's worked out. So it's, 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 yeah, I love it. Thank you for explaining. You say you are lazy. It can't be true. You've made millions of dollars selling courses and you've written a book. You can't be a lazy person. Okay, so here's the thing. Everybody says that. They're like, you're not lazy. Look at all you do. Or I, I am always out walking or pacing, um, mostly to burn calories. And so I do do a lot of physical activity. And the thing is, I think that there are two kinds of lazy, just like there's uh, good fat and bad fat or good cholesterol and bad cholesterol, like avocado is supposed to be good fat. I think there's good lazy and bad lazy, and I have them in equal measure. Um, so good lazy, I feel, is the part of me that is comfortable doing nothing, that does, I don't find my self-worth, I don't locate my self-worth in how hard I work. And a lot of people do men and women, both. They think if the harder they work, the better person they are. And they feel guilty if they're doing nothing. They feel guilty if they have downtime or blank space on the calendar, whereas that's what makes me feel the best. I love my calendar to be as blank as possible. And uh, I have to say, my I don't know if this is good or bad. My husband would probably prefer I'm less lazy. Like when he comes around with the vacuum, I am hard pressed to even lift my feet. I'm just, I'm lazy in that sense. I'm like, I'm a loafer. I like to watch TV. I like to lie around. Um, and I embrace that. I'm comfortable with it. And I think that that's good lazy, being able to relax. I'll say that the bad lazy is the part of me that is, that I, I would call bad lazy as fear in pajamas. It's resistance. It's uh, procrastination. I don't, I'm not, I don't feel like doing that. So I'm not, and I don't feel like doing it because I'm not confident because I don't know where to start because I think it's going to be bad. I don't think it's going to be good enough. So that resistance also manifests as laziness. And, um, so I don't think that's true lazy. I think that's 
you know, when they say there's no such thing as laziness, there's just fear, there's resistance, et cetera, that part of it is, uh, I, I agree with that. I would still call that lazy, but bad lazy. You do walk a lot. Yes. I've seen you, I've seen you pounding the pavement <laughs> on the, on your Instagram stories every single day. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Every single day. How far? Um, I like to walk a minimum of six miles a day and when it's warm out maybe it'll be nine and this is broken up usually over throughout the day I just like going out for walks do you have a dog or do you just take yourself out? no dog I take myself for walks I do not however poop and pee on the street but I <laughs> <laughs> as far as I can avoid it um but I yeah I love going out for walks it's just to me, the easiest form of exercise. You don't have to gear up. You don't have to put on a sports bra. And you can just go out there and listen. I mean, I listen to podcasts. I love listening to things. I listen to audiobooks. And I am a little compulsive about it, like checking my... I use the health app on my iPhone, you know, the one with the heart. And so I'm always looking at my steps. It's an OCD kind of thing. A little bit left over from my teenage like weight loss gear not just teenage but into my well into my 30s like gotta work out gotta sweat gotta burn calories um you know, diet culture etc that's pretty ingrained in me but it's good it's good for me it's pretty deep stuff it's deep it's, it's uh yes yeah, it's, it, it's it's very deep stuff and it again it's a bit like good and bad it's like how do you separate something that can be good and bad yeah. for you that kind of compulsion um uh so that's quite a lot of hours spent walk it is um but i think we've established that you then can you can switch on to work mode and get stuff done when you need to how many hours a day do you think you need to be productive in the kind of uh creative business you're in i have zero idea i don't measure how many hours i work ever and if i do a day with zero hours of work i'm delighted uh, I, I haven't had that opportunity for a while because i have a book coming out so now I'm working way harder than I would like, way more than I'd like. I found like I was just on vacation with my mom and sister, um, and I I brought my laptop to the pool because I just I had a lot of I'm I'm pitching the podcast. There's a lot of work. There's endless amounts of work to be done, and I want this book to be successful more than I want to lie there and do nothing. So. Yeah. And sometimes you just have to, that doesn't mean that you, like you go back, it doesn't mean that you, you're not, nobody is proving anything or doing any better for skipping vacations and always being by the pool with their laptop. But sometimes it just has to be done. Right. I, and yes, no, I was going to say, and it embarrasses me. I don't like to look like I'm working too hard, maybe because my brand, I've branded myself as an unapologetically lazy person. So it's off brand for me to be seen working by the pool. But sometimes you just gotta, gotta do it. So yeah, and, and selling books is a, is a full on thing. Uh, can you introduce Tough Titties to us, please? Oh, sure. So the full title is Tough Titties on living your best life when you're the effing worst. And it is a memoir and essays of a misfit dork, me, coming of age in 80s, 90s New York, and late blooming into an unusual life and career by way of social mishaps, dating humiliations, career and adulting fails, many of them, um, or as my husband likes to call it, loser sex in the city. 
So that is what the book is. It will make you feel better about your own life if you're if you ever feel behind in your life and your career, if you feel like a late bloomer, or you just feel like you are the effing worst. And by that, I don't mean necessarily a bad person, but someone who will occasionally admit, I'm so sorry, I'm the worst. I'm the worst. Like I, I didn't text you back. Um, I'm hoping that you'll, I said I wanted to get together, but I didn't really mean it. Uh, or you talking behind people's backs sometimes. I know I'm the worst. Being a fully flawed human. Oh, it sounds so wonderful. You wrote something that caught my eye not so long ago about, about pitching this book in to publishers and, and, you know, how that wasn't super straightforward. Yeah. But you got, well, maybe you should tell the story. How did you get this deal? Ah, okay. So this is not, the book that I'm supposed to write, which is in keeping with the theme of the book, because Tough Titties, the the reason I named it that is A, because I'm 12 and it's something I still say a lot, and B, because I feel like it's the ultimate sorry, not sorry. Like, you want me to be this way? You want me to do all these things I'm supposed to? You, think, you, you want me to get to work at nine, wake with an alarm, do a morning routine, uh, learn to roast a chicken, have kids, well, Tough Titties. I'm not doing any of that. So um, that's kind of the theme of the book. And yeah, as I was saying, the book is not the book I'm supposed to write. The book I'm supposed to write here in the online space as somebody who's known as a creator, copywriter, marketer is a copywriting book, a marketing book, or a self, you know, a self-help personal development book, something that's in the advice and how to section. And I refused to write that kind of book. It's just not the book I wanted to write. I've always wanted to write a book of my stories. Um, and so I pitched it to agents. I had the usual amount. I was expecting rejection. People do reject you a bunch when you're looking for an agent. It's very rare that everybody pounces on it. Um, and But I did, I did manage to get an agent, and I made, that, I made them promise me that they would not uh, agree with, to a make it a different kind of book. If any publisher said, would she be willing to make this a marketing book or, or a copywriting book that they would say, no, it's it is a, an essay collection. It's a memoir and essays. Um, and so they went out with it and, you know, told me it was in fall of 2020. They, they went out with it in around September, October and said, you know, put these dates on your calendar, like block these dates off for meetings with editors, with publishers. And so um, they'd given me like three days in a row to block off, which I did. And I kept waiting for like, for these to fill up. I'm like, let me know when you've got all these publishers to put on the calendar, all these meetings. And they were like, yeah, we have um, this, uh, an editor we're going to meet with at 2 p.m. on Thursday. And I was like, what else? And they're like, that's, that's it so far. And they told me, they were like, they, they'd sent it out to a lot of publishers and all these publishers had said, sure enough, would she be willing to make this a copywriting book or a marketing book or something that like, this is what her audience expects and would want. And they kept their promise and said no. So, and they did find one editor, one publisher, and that was at Hachette, um, who said, I love this. It is, she said, it's basically, it's self-acceptance for smart people. And she really liked the voice and what it was all about. And so she uh, made a bid and we accepted it. 
So um, it's very possible that I could have had, who knows, like a, one the, the big six-figure, multi-six-figure deal, a bidding war, et cetera. I don't know if that's true or not, but if I had gone with the kind of book that I am, quote, supposed to write, but I would rather eat a bag of hair than write that book. <laughs> <laughs> There's so many, there are just like a hundred takeaways in there. But just, you just have to, you just, <laughs> you just have to do... You have to, you know, and also, you know, like if you had like gone, okay, yeah, I'll write the copy. Would it have been the best copywriting book in the world because you you didn't want to write it? Probably, you know, yeah. it, not. I expect not. Um, you spend, or you appear to spend, to me, time getting PR coverage for yourself, for your business, for your work by writing into uh, magazines and uh, online publications. Do you prefer that as a way of raising your visibility and profile to using social media? Uh, I, I think it's very effective. I think you need both. I don't, I don't do it as much as I could or should. I would love it. I would love to say like, oh, you know, every Monday is my pitch day and I pitch a bunch of publications and I'm constantly writing essays. I go in waves like 2019. I did a lot of them and um, and then a smattering of them since then. And I think it's, I, I do love being able to share an article. There's a lot of clout in it and fun in saying, look, I'm in Forbes or look, I'm in, you know, insider or money. Um, and it is also fun to show people that you can write because these are a lot of them are business publications. You can write for a business publication and still make it fun and interesting. Interesting, and it doesn't have to be a dry like five tips to blah blah blah. So um, I like doing that a lot. Social, I also like on occasion. It's gotten to be more of a slog because the algorithm. It just feels less gratifying. It's like no rhyme or reason to what people like, and or maybe that was always the case. It's, it is also true that I'd say there's no rhyme or reason back in the day, like cannot predict what people are going to like. You post something that you worked on for, you know, polished into this little jewel and you're like, this is my life's work in a Instagram post. And, and then it gets like, you know, a slow 10 likes and you're like, what's going on? You restart your router. Like, is there something, something is Instagram down? Um, and then you do, right. And then you dash off something and it somehow goes like semi viral and everybody's going this, and you're like, really this. Okay. Uh, so I've never been the best at guessing what's going to take off, but nowadays it feels way harder to get that kind of traction from something. I think it does. And maybe, I don't know, maybe our attention spans are a bit, you know, I'm not spending as much time looking at other people's content, I don't think. I've become, I don't know, you get, you kind of move on yourself. Yes. Um, Laura, listen, um, huge uh, good luck, well wishes for Tough Titties, your book that you wanted to write and getting that out into the, the universe. Um, I, I, can't, I imagine it will delight people everywhere. Thank you. It's already getting a lot of good reactions, a lot of good response. And Kelly Ripa herself endorsed it, which I'm very excited about. Um, and she told me that she... Uh, I don't know if your audience knows Kelly Ripa. She's huge um, here in the States. Morning talk show called Live with, it was Live with Kelly and Ryan. Now it's Live with Kelly and Mark. She's 
uh, hosting with her husband now, but is one of the, you know, the number one broadcast shows and she's a big deal. So I was delighted that she endorsed it and gave me a blurb and said that her husband kept asking her what's so funny while she was reading it. That made me very happy. So yes, that's my, I mean, my favorite thing to hear is, you know, my partner, my husband, my spouse keeps asking me what's so funny, or it is keeps telling me to shush because I'm laughing too much, or that people complain that I kept them up, that my book kept them up till like three in the morning, four nights in a row, my favorite compliments ever. And I've been getting a lot of those. So I am confident that it's a great read. And and that it's funny. And um, I think your audience will love it. I'm very happy that it's now available in UK for pre-order. And I want it to make the list. That is all my way of saying, you really want it to make the New York Times bestseller list. It's, it's a long shot for everybody. Um, yeah, there's no, you know, but if you, you don't, can't. you've got, to, if you don't put your skin in the game, That's right. If you don't say if you don't say it out loud and try try really hard for it, then it definitely won't happen. Oh, listen, um, good, yeah, good luck, good luck, good luck with it, and thank you so much for um, sharing your your humour and wisdom with us. Thank you so much, Helen. This was a delight. I am in love with the fact that Laura refused to write the obvious book, the one that would have been easy to get published and wrote the one she wanted to instead. The thing you want to do or talk about or write about or can't stop thinking about and keep coming back to is the thing to get out into the world, isn't it? Can I also share the story of how I got Laura onto the show? She's a pretty grand fromage in the content marketing world, especially in America, and so gets loads of podcast invites. And most people like that don't even reply to your podcast invites. But Laura's assistant did get back to me about a year ago the first time and said, thank you for the invitation, but we won't even look at a podcast until you've got 100 episodes. And I was like, okay. If that makes me serious, I'll make 100 episodes. And I did, and I asked her back, and she came. That's it. Now, go and share this episode with your friends on social media. Help other people to find the Just Bloody Post-It podcast. Thank you always for listening. And thank you to Suze, the producer. I don't think I've said thank you to you so far this series. Thank you for putting up with all my last-minute working habits. We are what we are. And we'll be back soon, chaps. Goodbye for now. Bye. Bye.